I want the I want the listeners to lean forward. Hi, and welcome back to Music at Three Pines, the podcast. My name is Brad Rayleigh, and today I am sitting down with Emily Scott Robinson. She is not only an award-winning songwriter, most recently winning the Telluride Troubadour Contest last June, but also the very first person to play Music at Three Pines. In fact, we referred to her as our patron saint. I met Emily in 2016 at Folk Alliance, and later that year we asked her to play a show in our house. She agreed, even though we had just moved to town, and gave us a fantastic show. The following August, she returned and brought with her Rachel Laban. I really need to have her on this podcast. And has introduced us to several other musicians that have or will play our series. Emily is a great singer and writes songs that evoke place and time. Her most recent album, Traveling Mercies, caught the attention of Billboard magazine, No Depression, and American Songwriter. In our conversation, we cover life in the pandemic, Black Lives Matter, and how she approaches songwriting. She also tells the story of her new single, The Time for Flowers, which you will hear in this episode. Emily Scott Robinson. I've been starting all these podcasts off simply asking people how they're doing. And so how are you doing during this pandemic and racial unrest and uh, loss of jobs? So, yeah, it's really been taking me emotionally through the ringer. Kind of like a washing machine. I cycle through <laughs> um, or a roller coaster, um, you know, I have my ups and downs. And there have been days when I'm just like, yeah, whatever, whatever. I'll tour when I tour again. I'm kind of on vacation. I mean, and then there's other days where I'm just like, oh my God, I, you know, I really benefit from the structure that touring gives me Mm. and I, I really like it. And I really get such an amazing kind of hit of energy and happiness and joy and sense of purpose from live performance. So I'm realizing that I'm having to find that in other ways Mm. right now. Nothing really does it for me the same way that touring and performing does. It's just so special. And I've noticed, you know, when the pandemic first started, we were, you know, doing a lot of these online concerts. You know, we're sort of in a marathon, not a sprint anymore. The limitations of meeting online have become really clear to me. I was thinking about some of the songwriting camps that I'm normally a part of in the summer, like song school. And I was going to be, I was so excited. I was going to be teaching at Sisters, um, Amer- Sisters Folk Fest, their Americana Song Academy. You know, there were discussions among these song camps, like, should we go virtual? And I think for the most part, people were like, no, the Mm -hmm. magic comes when we're gathering. I've slowed down my online concerts. I'm like taking a break. I'm, you know, it's kind of hard to constantly have my face on camera (laughs) and feel like I need to show up online. Um, it's a little exhausting in its own weird way. So I've been taking a step back from those things and just like spending some more time outside and writing more and just kind of taking care of like back end business stuff that needs Mm. to be taken care of. And Mm -hmm. I don't think I've been busy, but then I look at the past couple months and I'm like, Oh dang, actually I've been super busy. I've did all these concerts and I've done benefit shows and I, 
wrote, recorded and released a new song. And Roos and I went and shot a video and we invited fans to submit all this all this footage of the coronavirus pandemic and also of like Black Lives Matter protests. And it's been amazing. Uh, it takes a lot more energy to perform online, to be yeah. honest, because when I'm performing for an audience, I, you know, I really feed off of the audience and it's this kind of co-creative experience. It feels like to me um, where I'm really listening to their energy and, and drawing upon the energy of the room that is totally gone when you're performing to a screen and when you're performing to your own face, which is just, you know, and there's like, there's a cool aspect to it where I get to see comments and I get to respond to people. And I love that aspect, but it's just not a substitute for the real thing. (laughs) One of the things I'm interested in, this really is not about you as an artist, just you as a person. And one of the things I've observed in being around all these singer songwriters and talking to musicians is that most of you tend to be more introspective and, and kind of thoughtful about these things because that's where you write. I mean, that's where your creativity comes from. So, Mm -hmm. but this question is really, about self-care, which you've said some of that, you're trying to get outside more, you're trying to do some other things that are, are, uh, are there other kind of uh, either habits that you've returned to or new habits that you've kind of found as a coping mechanism for, for this, this pandemic? You know, not really. I've kind of like gotten way back to basics <laughs> when it comes to self-care because you know, things that I might have considered to be self-care in the past, like taking a little trip or going to get a massage or getting acupuncture, like, you know, getting body work done, um, you know, taking myself out for a nice meal. Um, Those aren't like a huge aspect of self-care, but the self-care has become really honed in, like on a day-to-day basis to the point where my self-care is okay, every day I wake up, how can I give myself some structure for the day? How can I get a little movement in whatever that feels like for today, whether it's like a nice long bike ride or just a yoga class or just a walk in the woods, you know, how can I feed myself? (laughs) A lot of of that. (laughs) Like, um, what what am I going to cook? Like, how can I feed myself in in a nourishing way? Um, Returning to my core meditation and spiritual practices, Mm. um, you know, which are pretty rooted in like shamanism. And so I do a lot of work of like kind of evaluating my own energetic field and setting boundaries and setting intentions for what I want Mm. in my life and being clear on what I want and being clear on what I don't want and how I want to use this time. Shamanism has got a lot of teachings that I think are useful for this pandemic right because shamanism is not this kind of new age love and light spirituality shamanism is about embracing the cycles of life Mm. death decay Mm. birth creation the things that we want to believe we control but we can't actually control and so it's shamanism is a very kind of naturalistic uh, at least the tradition that i study in the lineage that i study um where this was interesting. This started kind of in the spring, but really this coronavirus on a, uh, this pandemic on a global level, on a physical level, on a spiritual level is really a, a, like a winter, a dying off that kind of season. 
And it's been, that's just, that's hard. That's just hard for everybody to go through, to walk through the shadow in that way. It's been, it's been hard. (laughs) It's just been hard. And I've kind of had to accept, like, it's okay that this is hard. (laughs) Uh, You know, what seeds can I plant right now? What practices can I adhere to to remember who I am? It's, it's really kind of gotten down to like the core aspects of self-care and not the, not the kind of materialistic, like I'm going to do self-care. I'm going to take myself to the spa and I'm going to buy some things, you know, it's really like, okay, you don't have any of that stuff right now. You don't have any of that shit. You, you're only with yourself. You have no break from your own self. (laughs) So, um, but then on the lighter side, like, binge watching things on Netflix has also been some self-care. Yeah. <laughs> it's really shown us the like the false ideas that we had about control in our life and it's really made us feel small. It's made everybody feel like yeah. it's like being caught in a hurricane when nature is showing you what it can do. It's scary. It it puts you in your place as this like human animal. In a, in a short lifetime on this crazy, wild, right. powerful planet with forces that are so much bigger than us. And yeah. so. And then on top of COVID, all of a sudden we're dealing with uh, race and hopefully in a good way. You know, I grew up in the South and so I felt as if I had an understanding of race. But really, I was uncomfortable confronting issues of race. And I felt much more comfortable. I had sort of kind of a wheelhouse where I worked with um, immigration advocacy. And so I was like, oh, well, I'm doing my work because I'm working with Hispanic immigrants, you know. I realized that if I posted every time a bl- like a black man or a black boy was killed in this country by the police, just if, if that was, those were just like the factors that I needed to post, that my entire white girl Instagram feed would just be the faces and names of black and brown men and Mm. boys educating myself more learning more reading more making more space for in my corner of the world like in the music business making more space for black musicians for indigenous Mm. artists um for uh other other minority artists uh, lgbtq people just because We've got this idea in the music business. It's the music business feeds us this idea about competition and there's not enough space for everybody. And so you have to fight and claw to get over one another. And white women have perpetuated that violence in order to say like, well, there's only 10 spaces in the room and there's only, you know, two spaces being, like eight of them are being taken up by white men. So there's only two spaces left. So I'm going to like claw my way over, you know, the black musician who is probably more talented than me um, so that I can get that space. And it's like, no, 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 no. We need to tear down the walls of this room and rewrite this whole system so that there's more space for all of us. And I think that the competitive in nature, the idea that there's not enough space for everybody, there's not enough press for everybody, there's not enough limelight, makes it easy for white women like me to be complicit in racism. We white people are going to have to be uncomfortable. We're going to have to give up space. We're going to have to give up resources to 
make this a more fit to rebuild and change the system in the way it is. So speaking of music, uh, do you describe yourself as a folk musician? I would actually really, I like to describe myself as Americana because I think I'm right at the intersection of country and folk. And I'm really informed by place and geography and by growing up in the South. And so I wouldn't describe myself as strictly a folk artist because I think there are a lot of my songs that are much more country. I really think I'm half, I've got one foot in one world and one in the other. And so the line in between is Americana, which is, you know, the catch-all phrase. So I've been following you and talking to you for, for quite a while. I know you have a, like a first career before you went into music. But one of the things I don't actually know is really your roots of how you became interested in music. Like, when did you write your first song? I mean, how, how musical were you in high school and college? So I was really musical growing up and I played the clarinet for like 15 years or I'm not sure if that math is right. Middle school, high school and college. Um, So I was really immersed in instrumental music and classical music. I started playing the guitar when I was like 14 years old. I had, uh, I went to summer camp every year and learned some really basic songs around the campfire and got really into on the side, you know, this wasn't what I was doing in, you know, in a formal way, but listening to a lot of women songwriters. So Joni Mitchell, um, Dar Williams, Ani DeFranco, um, later in college is when I was introduced to Patty Griffin and Milou Harris, like this kind of whole lineage of Women songwriters and oh, Jewel <laughs> was one of the earliest like women songwriters I was listening to. I just started playing, kind of fooling around on the guitar and singing and uh, learning covers. And that's basically what I did through high school and college. Then, when I was in college, I would play a show every year on campus. They, you know, you could audition to do like a show in there student union and and so I did that every year and my friends would all come and I'd play a bunch of covers <laughs> and Dixie Chicks and oh god they're not the Dixie Chicks anymore no, 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 you can't call the them chicks. That. yeah I can't I know I keep forgetting because you know no, I mean, that's yeah it's been like um but I'm so oh I'm so proud of them I'm so happy um that they dropped the Dixie part I wrote one song when I was 21 And it was a good song and I liked it and it came out pretty easily. And then the other songs I tried to write after that didn't come out so easily. So I dabbled in songwriting, but I found it to be hard, which it is. When I was 20, the summer I turned 26, I believe, 25 or 26, I went to song school for the very first time, which I loved. Song school is a songwriting camp that happens every summer at planet bluegrass in Lyons, colorado obviously not happening this summer but will happen in the future and it's a four-day songwriting workshop with all these wonderful different teachers and all these students from all over the country and it's beautiful it's the summer in colorado you're on the river and the mountains and that is the first time i ever took classes that kind of unpacked ways to write songs and the first time I was ever surrounded by artists who were pursuing music careers and independent folk musicians just doing their thing 
doing it in a grassroots way, in a way that felt accessible to me. Mm. And that was the first time I ever imagined that I might be able to pursue a career in music. I loved it so much. And I got bit by the bug. <laughs> and I, yeah. I started exploring the idea of being a songwriter and being a musician because I knew I had the singing down. I knew I had the performance down. Yeah. Yeah. It was like building a platform and starting writing the songs, recording the songs, doing it all from scratch, being a beginner, which totally intimidated me. I did oh, not want to be a beginner. I didn't want to be vulnerable that way. I didn't want to be a beginner in at all. I had to suck up my ego and just say, whatever, you have to start sometime. So I did. I quit my full-time social work job and my husband and I went traveling on our long honeymoon through Europe and through Eastern Europe. And I bought a little guitar in Eastern Europe in Bulgaria where we were. He's Bulgarian. Brought this little kind of parlor guitar out on the road with us in our, in our little station wagon as we camped our way around Eastern Europe and some beautiful places, Croatia, Slovenia. And we, we mm. took several months off. I started writing my first couple songs. I start, that's where I wrote Marriage Ain't Thin and Being Lonely. Mm -hmm. That's where I wrote Mary, um, some of the first songs that I ever recorded on Magnolia Queen. Then from there, we moved to Chattanooga, Tennessee which we lived there for a year and a half. My husband's a rock climber. You know that. Roos is a big rock climber. And Chattanooga is one of the best places in the country for rock climbing. Rock climbing was great. We didn't love the weather. We didn't love being back in the South. <laughs> so we were there for a year and a half. And while I was there, I made this intentional move to um, only work part-time so that I could start building up my music career, going to open mic nights, playing gigs, writing songs, recording, just like doing all the starter stuff. I spent the next year working as a Spanish interpreter at the hospital as a, on a, con, a contract gig. And that was great because I just worked three days a week. And, and it was a job that didn't take up the same kind of headspace that being a social worker did. Being a Spanish interpreter in the hospital, you know, I would just like check in with people and interpret for them. And it was, it was a job that I loved because I loved being able to help people. It was a job I could leave at my job. So three days a week I'd work there. And then the other four days I would write and um, play guitar and start my website. And so I, I was entering competitions. My very first competition I ever entered in one was a lyrics contest through American Songwriter Magazine. Felt like every step I took in the direction of being a musician was was rewarded threefold. Um, and so I went to, I signed up and went to Folk Alliance for the first time. And that's the year you met me. Oh, okay, so 2016. 20, yeah. 2016. My husband, Ever the Adventurer, was like, what if we bought an RV and moved into it and traveled around the country? And I was like, yeah, let's totally do that. Like, that's how long the conversation lasted. I am not kidding you. I was like, definitely, I'm in. When you met me in 2016, I had just gotten into the studio. I had won some studio time in Chattanooga uh, from an open mic night. I had won four hours, cut like four demo songs, <laughs> and got the CD made really quick. So I could bring it to Folk Alliance and give it away to people. And I've got one somewhere. Yeah, that's like you've got the very first version of Magnolia Queen. 
I couldn't even pay for mastering. We just did like, yeah. um, did what we call like a fake master. And we just got the CD. I got the CDs made, brought them to Folk Alliance, gave them away. Um, this is only four years ago. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> it's wild. That Folk Alliance, that first Folk Alliance is where I met people for the mm. first time where Rebecca Loby took me under her wing and she, she was in the room uh, with me. She and, and yeah. Anna Rose were both yeah. in the watching with, with me. Well, let me ask you about that folk Alliance because it's obviously a very fond memory for me. That was my first time too. So when you talk about those two 30 in the morning, I, that was uh, my first experience. One of the things I noticed when I first saw you as opposed to now, I mean, obviously you've, you've honed, your stagecraft, uh, all of that, but your guitar work has gotten, I mean, has improved a lot. I mean, just the, the texture, the style, the change, mm -hmm. the nuance, and, and that's been intentional. I mean, that's right. I mean, that's something you've been working on. Brad, it is not intentional. Oh, really? <laughs> I have to laugh. I've just, I've just become a better guitarist because I play a lot more. You play. You, I started you, exploring more open tunings, which are really fun. Oh my God. If you yeah. drop your guitar into an open tuning, you can just, it's like a blank landscape. Justin Roth is so great. Yeah. If you guys don't know Justin Roth, you need to look up his music, but he has all these amazing hacks for beautiful open tunings. And you can be in this cool open tuning and just play one string and you've got this cool sustained sounding chord and you can create so much movement without really knowing anything. You can just play around. Well, let me, let me return to songwriting how you see yourself from those early songs hmm. to now. I mean, how do you see your own songwriting? Um, that's a poorly phrased question, but how, how do you see the growth of your songwriting yourself? I think that the writing itself now is just as good as it was in the beginning. My ability to craft melody and hooks mm -hmm. has gotten better. When I was first writing melodies because <laughs> I tend to write words first so when I was first writing melodies and I didn't have as much fluency on the guitar I would just pick a key I was comfortable in and it was like the first melody that just kind of hit me I would go with and go okay that's good enough I'm not gonna mess with this and I've learned more and explored more because I'm more comfortable now with with prosody with matching a melody to the lyrics so that if I'm asking a question with a lyric that I end the song, like mm. that I end that line melodically on a higher note because it's a question. Um, mm. So like the song, the dress, was it the dress I wore? Mm. So it ends on a higher note because when you ask a question, was it the dress I wore? Your voice lifts up. I've learned to do that and like had a lot of fun getting more into my work on melodies. Um, because it's kind of this other arena where I get to be, <laughs> I get to be nerdy and perfectionistic. And so I'm super proud of my newer melodies, really into them. They're so fun. And I've got songs I haven't released yet, but I'm just proud of my growth as like a songwriter in that respect, mm -hmm. melodically and prosodically <laughs> with prosody, I mean, finding the arcs of the song and, and just serving the whole experience so that, yes, the hook matters, melody matters, rhythm matters. I, I want the, I want the listeners to lean forward. <laughs> I really do. That's like, that's what I, you know, that's what I love.
But your ability to do these, create these fictional landscapes at, at your very first house concert in our house, my sister-in-law, uh, at some point you said to, to, to the crowd, you said, I just want you to know I'm happily married. So this, you know, this song about all these songs about, um, cheating and everything else that's that's not and and my sister-in-law was like oh thank god i was <laughs> that's a skill that not everybody can do to be able to say and take a, a a fictional world essentially and it may it may be a world that you have some understanding of because you mm-hmm. grew up in the culture or you spent time in the town or you knew something about the people but the story itself is something that's not out of your personal experience and you clearly like to do that, right? I mean, that's, oh, I that's... love it. It's so fun. I guess I just, I love a good character. I think fiction can often tell the truth better than the actual truth. This way of showing, like holding up a mirror to an audience and saying, look, you are in this. Like, do you see yourself? But it's fiction. So I'm not, it's like, I love playing Magnolia Queen to a Southern audience, right? Magnolia Queen, if you guys haven't listened to it, is a story about this, you know, this woman who wins a beauty pageant and she really kind of wears that as a crown and she does all the things that she's supposed to do. She gets married, she has kids, they grow up, they leave the house and she's sitting around on her second or third martini and going, is this it? She's a character and she's fictionalized. But if I play that for a Southern audience, you know how many people will see truth in that you know not just the southern audience really anywhere i can play it in the midwest it's so highly relatable portland oregon not so much um (laughs) i did play that song there and the crowd was just like junior league what's junior league? yeah (laughs) that it's like holding this mirror up and going this is fiction this is fiction so i'm not i'm not criticizing you directly i'm just showing you through this character you know what southern womanhood was and and we're exploring ideas about how a southern womanhood is changing and like this is a what this is wealthy white southern womanhood um it's fun to play with characters and you have to love your characters and i read bird by bird by anne lamott Mm -hmm. very early on in my writing career and well i just kind of keep it around like a bible um, I'll frequently just pick it back up and go, oh my God, this, there's still so much here for me. Um, I don't keep the actual Bible around, but I keep that book around. That's my writing Bible. <laughs> Anne Lamott has this wonderful part all about writing characters and knowing your characters and stepping into their lives and knowing, you know, you can write a line about a character, but you should be able to answer questions about your character. Like, how would your character have voted in the 1996 election? And, and, and also fiction, fictional songs can be this way of packaging a truth about myself in a way that's safe to share with an audience. Like, marriage ain't thin and being lonely, that's not my story, not even close but I'm in a great marriage and I'm still lonely on the regular. I mean, you know, not really on the regular, but I have moments of like true grief and loneliness and pain because I'm human. My husband is human. And those are, those are human emotions and experiences and marriage doesn't protect you from that. Yeah. Like marriage into being lonely is about me, but it isn't my story. I think Um, the first song I heard of yours was thirst. That's also not autobiographical, of course, right. but we have a lot of alcoholism in my family 
I could see I could see that character. I could feel that character. I could feel the character of the child wanting to fix their parents because I grew up as a you know perfect little codependent. Um, and if you guys don't know what codependency is, go Google it. Um, I won't go into like a long therapeutic discussion, but it's wanting to change things about people that you can't change because your idea of love is also wrapped up in control and in fear. Um, and so the chorus of thirst is, I used to wish his love for us was bigger than his thirst, but you can't fix what's broken. That's not how love works. And when I wrote that chorus, I was like, damn, mic drop. When I heard that, it was like, it came to me and I was just like, okay, cool. Thanks universe. That was, that's an amazing chorus. (laughs) Mark McClellan was in the room and he and I looked at each other when you sang that line and that, that you, yeah, that's, that's an amazing, amazing line. Thank you. It's sometimes those things, they come and I'm like, I don't know where they came from. I believe in Liz Gilbert's idea that she promote that she talks about in big magic that songs they it's like they're like butterflies or spirits out in the world there are these ideas they actually have their own life to them and that they come and and visit us and they say i choose you to bring me into the world Hmm. and i i love that sense of creativity because it it lines up with my ideas the teachings that i've received in shamanism that we are co-creating when we create something we're co-creating with forces that are bigger than us Mm -hmm. in the world and i regularly feel tapped into things that are bigger than me when i'm writing not only am i writing about more people than just myself so i'm tapped into other stories and collective but i do feel like these songs they have this life they come and tap me on the shoulder and say will you take the time to let me have a life i just think that's a beautiful way to approach creativity let me ask you more specifically about songwriting because i think people who are listening who uh would like to write songs or and and i am always curious about this process of how people write so can you maybe just take us through you have an idea maybe something you've written in your journal or something that you uh, align or and then how do you actually go through the process of this is my writing time i'm sitting down this is how i and working on this. Can you kind of take us through the life of a song? Yeah, it looks really different sometimes for some songs. Um, I mean, I'll generally get an idea, like a chorus idea, a title idea, a couple lines of a verse, uh, and I'll put them down in my recorder on my phone. Mm-hmm. Um And I get a lot of ideas when I'm doing other things, washing dishes, cooking, hiking, running, riding my bike, whatever, um, driving. I'll try to get them down. And then usually at some point, it's not always that day, but some point soon after is when I like sit down with that idea and flesh it out. Um, And I'll do some free writing around the idea. Um, I'll pull out my rhyming dictionary. I'll do some sensory writing. Um, you know, like if it's a character or story song, I will get really into the scene and the feeling of the scene. And so, um, it's like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of write the whole, I'll create the scene. How does it look? How does it feel? What's the temperature? What do I taste or smell? How does it feel physically? Um, and 
that really, really, really helps a character song and it really helps like a story song. Um, and yeah, I just, and then I'll go back through what I've written. I'll just kind of circle things on the page. It's very messy. I do a lot of messy notebooks, messy writing. And I'll circle things that feel really powerful. Like, oh, bam, that's a zinger. Like that belongs in there. Uh, and then I will spend, usually, I mean, I'll spend like probably eight to 10 hours at least over the life of a song. And these would be the songs that are easier songs to write. <laughs> like some songs take a lot longer, but I guess I'd probably spend, it'd be like several days of focused writing through, you know, two to three hours a day. When I feel like a song is close, it has potential, it's ready to be finished. Um, I have a lot of half written songs right now, which are really bugging me. So I don't set aside time every day to write. I probably should, but I don't because every day is different for me. Um, I really just kind of follow the inspiration when it comes and try and give it the time and attention it needs when it really comes up for me organically. Um, and then I'll do like the editing. I generally know when a song is ready, when it's done. But a lot of times I'll run something when it's really close to being done. I'll run something by Roos, my husband. I'll run the whole song by him and see if it lands in the way I want it to land. Because Roos is not a songwriter. So it's really good to get his opinion. Songwriters themselves, I think, you know, if you get a songwriter's opinion on a song, they'll go, oh, I love what you did there. What a clever line, this and that. How cool, this rhyme scheme, this whatever. And they're a little too heady. And so you need, if my goal as a songwriter is to, for an emotional impact to happen right. with a song, which is my goal for most songs, I need to make sure that my lyrics are super clear, that my metaphors make sense. Like they're not all over the place right. and I need to make sure the melody is good that it doesn't get boring that it doesn't drag and my husband is the perfect person to run all that by because he'll go yeah like I I I really I know what you're trying to do there but it didn't really hmm. I don't know it just didn't really make sense to me and I'll go okay I love editing <laughs> Um, I edit a lot. That's kind of how the song happens. So you, you, but you, you've said you start really lyrically is where your, your, most of your songs really start. And then at some point yeah. you pick up the guitar and start working on finding melody lines and. Usually pretty early I'll pick okay. up the guitar because the melody or the, 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 the lyric, the lyric line needs to have rhythm. Like it right. needs to fit the rhythm of right. the song and the melody. Right. I have a few songs that have started on guitar that have started with the melody. Um, my little, my open tuning songs like Westward Bound. Um, but for the most part, I start lyrically and I'll pick up the guitar super early. Hmm. Let me ask you about this song. We're going to play it. Um, one of the things I thought when I was listening to it is, and maybe it's me sort of checking out from listening to a lot of people, but it's really one of the first songs I've heard that is really so for this time. Uh, a song of lament and yet hope um, at the same time. Can you maybe talk a little bit about, about this song? Yeah. I, um, so I got the idea for this song from a book I was reading. The book is called A Gentleman in Moscow. It's a wonderful book, Aristocrat in Moscow, this um, kind of fine, wealthy, former member of the oligarchy in 
Russia, who survives the Russian Revolution, survives the Civil War, but is forced to live under house arrest, basically, in this hotel in downtown Moscow, in the attic. And so his life becomes very, very small. It's all about routines. It's all about kind of the structure of his day. And that felt so relatable to me early on in quarantine. Uh, he's looking at in, in the lobby of this famous hotel. And there used to be a florist who had a little shop in the lobby of the hotel, this little kind of corner booth shop. It's all boarded up. There is no space for aesthetic things and beauty and flowers and whatever we're like and so he looks at this shop and he and he goes oh but the time for flowers will come again and I thought that was a really beautiful line because I was crying I took that line the time for flowers and I just kind of held on to it and rolled it around in my head in my heart for a couple weeks and then kind of wrote a draft of this song and then somebody on a Facebook live stream was like do you have any new songs? And I was like, well, of course, it's all my friends and Facebook fans. So they're like, it's great. It's perfect. It doesn't need to be rewritten. You don't need to do anything. Edited the heck out of it. And then I played it for Roos. <laughs> it was like five days of me just working on this. He goes, will you just like finally play me this song? And so I played it for him and he kept his head down as he was listening to it. Like he's listening kind of with his hand over his eyes, just trying to focus. And then at the very end, when I finished, he looked up and he was crying. And I was like, oh, okay. And we saw this one morning, we were like laying in bed checking Facebook, which is lame because, you know, we try to have better boundaries with our phones, but we're human. So Bruce was looking at this little video on Facebook of a friend of his um, back in North Carolina. And she posted this video of her daughter and her daughter's best friend, a little boy, seeing each other for the first time in months. And they like get out of the car and they look at each other and then they just run at each other and embrace in this hug that lasts like 50 seconds. <laughs> and then at the end they break away and they're both like wiping tears from their eyes. And it's so beautiful. And Ruth showed it to me and he goes, we should make a video for Time for Flowers. And we should put this in there. And so he sent her a message and said, could we use this? You know, could you ask this little boy's mom? And then I put out this call to all my people, friends of mine, to send pictures of themselves with their masks on, pictures of what they were doing during quarantine, um, photos and video footage from um, the Black Lives Matter protests. And I was so inspired by what people sent me. And so while also, because I just didn't want to make this like, whitewash video, this message of healing and hope, we're not just healing a global pandemic. I mean, racism is also a global pandemic. And that's the other thing we're working to heal right now. It's like right. these two things happening at the same time. Like this is happening for a reason. We'll play the song here, but we'll put a link to the, uh, I'm going to put a link in our, in the podcast information to your website, to your PayPal, and we'll put a link to the video too. And, but here's, here's the song, uh, the time for flowers. I went walking down the road with a heavy heart and my eyes left to go when I came upon a woman in a field on her knees singing ancient songs and sewing wildflower seeds 
That, that is just such a great song. And like I was telling you before, I, I think for me, and maybe I haven't heard some of these other quarantine songs, but it really was timely for me. It's, it's the reminder that I needed. I tend to, to brood and, uh, you know, get pretty down about, about stuff. And so um, having that kind of recognition of that, which is what I really liked about it, is it not trying to just wash it away or say, you know, look on the bright side, 
but that there is going to be something good out of this. And I, I really appreciate you doing that. You're welcome. It was, it, you know, I wanted it to be a song that would be of service to people, um, like a, a kind of medicine encouraging. And I, in the song, I really tried to kind of consult with the archetype of the elder who has seen so much in her lifetime. And she's advising us who haven't lived through as many cycles as she has in life that, you know, we need to be planting seeds right now. And, and, not only do we need to tear down the things that aren't working, but we need to envision change. Mm -hmm. We need to actively create new systems that work better, that care more, that care for people in a more just way. And so we have to plant those seeds and this is the time to do it. And I, this yeah. is what, this is the work that many people are doing right now. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. So there's so much goodness happening in the world. Um, and I wanted yeah, I wanted to give people a reason to something to hang on to, you know? Yeah. No, and yeah. I appreciate it as somebody who needs that. So thank you so much. I have just three more questions for you, actually. Great. This is where we get to, uh, uh, I stole this from Brene Brown, although she has 10. <laughs> anyway, so uh, so here are my three questions, which okay. have been kind of fun to do. First of all, the question is, um, who is the songwriter that makes your jaw drop? Ooh, um, hang on, let me think about this. Okay, I knew what I'm gonna say. All right, I want to take the time <laughs> to say that one of the most jaw dropping songwriters I know is Robbie Hecht. Yeah, and he's not, you know, as famous as Bob Dylan or Joni Mitchell or Jason Isbell or um, Patty Griffin. He's a friend of mine, he's been a songwriter for a long time. Um, his last name is spelled H E C H T. Robbie is a jaw-dropping songwriter. Good choice on that. Okay. Um, and by the way, I also recognize there's probably other songwriters. You know, that's the, totally. this is a, anyway. All right. So second question. Um, music outside of Americana, outside of the, the field that you see yourself in that inspires what you do. Hmm. Um, this is such a good question. I love this question. Just love it. Love it. Okay, so this isn't a genre, but it's an artist. Okay. Uh, Leon Bridges. Okay. I love Leon Bridges. And I honestly don't listen, me personally, I don't listen to a lot of folk Americana country on my own because mm. it sometimes feels like work. Mm. <laughs> I can listen to Leon Bridges and just, just, enjoy, and just like feel the emotion and the like beauty and the poignancy in the songs. And that's like who I listen to when I am cooking dinner, <laughs> when I'm out on a picnic, that's... like it's just stuff with like a little more rhythm, a little mm. more production, like the kind of like R and B soul pop. Like I just, yeah, love him. Okay. The last question. And this, this question has morphed. For reasons I'll tell you in a second, but the question mm -hmm. is essentially a guilty pleasure music wise or a um, music that you listen to that might surprise your fans. Definitely Taylor Swift. Okay. I don't feel, I don't feel guilty. But you don't about feel guilty. It. Not at all. Right. When I was younger and less aware of the stories that were being told about Taylor because she was a young woman in music, 
and a really young, talented woman in music and all the ways that she was getting portrayed and dragged by the media and um, kind of turned into a two-dimensional character, all of these things, you know, and she was young too, and she was finding her own voice. People had such a, people in the kind of intellectualized music world had such an eye roll when it came to Taylor Swift. And I'm like, how are we rolling our eyes now? I think back at such a remarkable and successful and versatile musician, a total star who has taken on a lot of causes and taken on a lot, um, carried it with a lot of grace. I, yeah, I think people would be totally surprised that I'm a huge Taylor Swift fan. I, I wanted to tell you, um, I'll introduce the podcast and tell them how much you have meant to us, to Lisa and I, for, for Three Pines. Um, you know, the first two times you played here, we weren't even called Three Pines. I mean, you, you are a big reason why um, we have done this and why we have enjoyed it because had we had a, a really bad outing that first time, who knows? We might have said, I don't know. Uh, well, we are, we're big fans of you here. And, we lo- uh, I and, love you guys so oh, much. Yeah. Oh, someday things will be back to normal and be able to Something, see each other again. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll do this again. A big thank you to Emily Scott Robinson for taking the time to talk to me and thanks to anyone listening. Please look in the podcast details for Emily's website, tip jar, and a link to her new video. And I hope you'll support her and other artists. This is a tough time for people associated with the music industry. And as I always say, we need our poets and truth tellers now more than ever. See you next time on Music at Three Pines, the podcast. Good,